Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Insurance Brokers Podcast. Today we have a slightly different episode and it is part two of our mini-series Return to Work. You'll recognise the speakers as Sarah McGee-Harris and Roland Ramata, both of whom have appeared on our podcast series before. Today we are talking about, specifically, mental health in the current climate, returning to work. I hope you enjoy. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Roland. Thank you very much for joining us on today's episode of the Insurance Broker Podcast. Today is a slightly different episode because there's three of us and we haven't done that before. And anybody listening will will recognize Sarah from the last episode. Today, we are talking about, given the whole dynamic of returning to work, we're talking specifically about mental health. So welcome, Sarah. Welcome, Roland. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I think what we really want to talk about today, and when we were talking about this earlier, what's really key is that the ramifications of not supporting mental health go much further than perhaps most people realize. And and I think if you go back in previous episodes, we've got the episode with Zoe, which is all around mental health and the benefits of supporting your own and others. But I think maybe what's often missed is the legal ramifications and compliance ramifications of not supporting mental health. So Roland's here to talk to us about the FCA and what their view on mental health is and what you absolutely must be doing in order to comply with your FCA duties. And Sarah's going to talk us through the people aspect and the business productivity aspect and all things HR related to mental health. So Roland, shall we start with you? Can you talk to us about what the FCA understand and require of you as a regulated firm in relation to mental health? Yes. So it's a very interesting topic and very important topic. And maybe before the recent pandemic and and shutdown, it didn't really have the right level of prominence in the industry, I would say. But it's definitely sneaking into the very fabric of the insurance sector. And um, more and more firms recognize the, the potential impact of mental health and what the lack of support within firms can cause in terms of compliance, but also in terms of operational efficiency. When it comes to the FCA, they are not that clear about their expectations in terms of how firms would need to handle mental health issues regarding their employees. I think there is a very clear difference between how to treat customers with mental health issues and how to treat employees with mental health issues. Naturally, the FCA's, one of the FCA's statutory objectives is to protect consumers. And to achieve that, just to touch on that very briefly, the FCA uses the terminology of vulnerable customers or vulnerable individuals, which is a much wider concept than just mental health, but it includes that too. So when one would look at the general overarching regulatory framework and and most notably the FCA principles of business, the 11 principles of business, 
It's quite evident that the FCA would expect firms to have the appropriate controls in place to handle mental health concerns, in particular where those issues would have an indirect or direct impact on how the firm would end up treating customers. Just to give a couple of examples that we've seen while dealing or helping our clients, it's not uncommon for individuals on the front line to develop some form of mental health or some form of vulnerability for that matter, whether it's anxiety from financial circumstances or anxiety from personal life. That somewhat trickles into the work life as well. So they won't be able to focus on their day-to-day activities. They make mistakes in policy documentations or claims handling. And straight away, the firm is in a situation where because of a mental health concern, they're not really treating customers fairly or as they should under normal circumstances. So driving that link all the way back to what the regulator would expect, well, generally speaking, it expects firms to recognize all the key risks that is present within the business and manage those risks so they can deliver the value and treat customers fairly at the very end. So mental health is not that prominent and obvious as a regulatory expectation, but it is uh, within the rules of the FC and it, and it needs to be incorporated as well. I think that's really interesting, actually, because it is, like you say, taking a, a wider perspective of the key risks within a business that then impact on the vulnerable or, or actually just on treating customers fairly. And, and I think um, taking an approach where mental health of employees comes into that would not be the first thing that, that businesses are looking at the moment, but absolutely is the way the directions of the world is going. What do you think, Sarah? I, I also found that quite interesting because mental health from an HR perspective has always been about the employee and obviously the impact on the business. Um, I've not had it before where it's from the direction of protecting the consumer. So I also find that really interesting and, um, and, and also quite helpful because there are some very different types of employers out there. And so some of them really value everything that HR brings to them and some don't. So the types of companies that, and, and the business leaders who, who perhaps don't buy into um, some of the HR um, initiatives and, and, um, and things that are brought in to look after their employees from a, from a health perspective, if they're able to see it from a financial impact perspective, actually that might help you know, them to actually do some really good stuff around mental health but perhaps not for the same reasons as other other employers. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. And one of the things that I think is quite exciting about this trio that, you know, the three of us are talking is the holistic approach from it. So obviously, Boston Tullis are around productivity, business processes, development, uh, increasing growth. And you can't really view that alone if you bring HR and the management of people and the understanding of people and supporting of people, you bring those two things together and then you do the overarching compliance piece where you make sure that everything you've brought together and every process you're putting in place is compliant. Actually, you should have a very holistic view of of your business processes that doesn't just impact positively the financial, but everything else around it. I think it's the way the world's going. Um 
I think you're absolutely right. And, and you somewhat hit the nail on the head with it. I think the starting point is there is a stigma when people start to talk about mental health. Uh, generally speaking, there is a stigma. So when when you kind of move it away from the label of mental health and you just kind of put it in the context of being social at work and being able to discuss concerns, I think that that's already a leap forward for most of the firms and, and that's the right direction towards having the appropriate culture. I mean, we already got first aiders at work. I think most of them has, has to, they have to have it. Uh, I'm, I'm not certain about that. But it's just adding on that additional benefits to every first aider. We could also potentially be a mental health first aider as well, if indeed that's a formal terminology for that. But just someone you can go and talk to who's not your manager, who's not your supervisor, and it's not on your performance record, and it's not going to be considered when you go from it. It's just a discussion. I think what really drives it home for most of the firms, and I think it was a, a Deloitte survey, where they found that mental health concerns amongst employees costs about forty billion pounds to the industry, and that's to do. I think FCA has already followed up on that in terms of the the long term illnesses caused by mental health, and there are numerous papers out on it. But what we've seen recently is how some of our, our clients in the past, and we're talking about a couple of years ago, they used to have. Um, that kind of approach of, you know, try to leave your private life on the other side of the door to the office. You know, if you have to bring it in, that's fine. Talk about it. We, we're going to try to be flexible, but try to leave it as home as much as possible. And that has kind of shifted over to, you know what, just rather discuss it with us and then we see what we can do. I feel like COVID has put a giant sledgehammer on that nut and cracked it wide open. And just jumping on what you said there, I did a, an interview with uh, Brendan McManus a few weeks ago, and it was a re- I really enjoyed doing it. And one of the things he said was he went into lockdown with this idea of, you know, jokes about who's got the best home office and a little competition and very quickly realized that across the PIB group, there were people in incredibly different circumstances with kids at home working on ironing boards in a hallway and things like that. And that for him, he was saying, really brought home this term mental health and that there is no divide. There's no private and personal versus work life. You, you're one person, you live one life and, and, and you can't just, or the majority of people can't just box up their problems and put them in a, in a place. And people that do often find that that spills out at a later date. So I think it's really, really important that that idea like you say, the stigma attached to it is lessening. And I know of a couple of companies in the insurance sector that have a mental health first aid, exactly that term, Roland. I think what's really, really important and what will play out over the next, hopefully, few years is that becoming more than lip service. Because some companies it is, it's, it's a label attached that you, I can put a tick in that box. I've covered off mental health, well done, go me. But the processes you put in behind that are really, really important because having a mental health first aider, there's a required process for that to actually work. Just adding on to that, yeah, mental health first aiders are, you know, are very common now in the UK. I still, still don't think it's law, but very much, you know, it's, it's definitely a good thing that people are really embracing and, and companies are embracing. The key thing for me, really, and, and like a lot of HR people-related communications, it's, it's all about the leadership if the leadership don't understand it and the leadership aren't bought into it, that message just doesn't come through the whole culture, you know, because you're just going to have people here just constantly fighting 
to get themselves heard. It's got to come from both directions. So there's a lot of education still to happen around it. I've done quite a lot on mental health over the last few years because it's, you know, it's not just arrived suddenly because of COVID. It's, it's been happening for some time, just a bit more gradually. And there's some really fantastic companies out there that make mental health just a bit more accessible to people. A lot of the time now, and there was, um, I was reading a, a piece just last week, actually, on there are a number of companies, uh, what was the stat? I'm trying to remember. I'll, I'll put a put a post on here um, so that you can see it. But um, I think during the lockdown, there's something like 68% of businesses, and this was a Deloitte report, when had added in mental well-being benefits to their program during lockdown. So, you know, companies are recognising it, and there are some really great tools and um, partners out there that can help employees who are having difficulty with mental health. I think that's really important. I think what you've just said there is is absolutely spot on. And I think um, the understanding of it coming from the top is really, really interesting because almost unless you've been there, how do you understand it in anything that's more than a logical tick box to do exercise? So when we were talking earlier about the financial impact, that's very very key and might get somebody moving, but it's moving in a logical tick box exercise rather than a deep and emotive, empathetic viewpoint that gets it. And one company that I think's got it really right is, and it's not insurance, it's personal that I know about it, is my husband's company. He works for a massive global company and it is on their agenda in all their meetings talking about mental health. I've listened to him on conference calls with very senior people within, it's Cisco that he works for, within Cisco, with their kids in the background talking and chattering and there's absolutely no stigma attached to it at all and I've listened in on conversations where you know they'll have a whole team meeting that is focused regularly on mental health with emails that come out regularly I'm talking weekly from the top mental health how are you doing this week what it's incredible and there was the logic part of me going wow there's a lot of time and energy is this really really necessary but actually through lockdown I think it's been I think it's really important I don't know many companies that are that on it I think it's admirable to say the least well this is going to be a bit selfish but just I will bring it back slightly to to my domain in terms of FCA compliance and maybe Sarah knows more about the, the HR aspect but the FCA in terms of having the right culture within a regulated firm would expect firms and, and in fact through a number of rules require firms to have have management information in place to monitor the culture and the conduct of the firm. Now when it comes to mental health, some of those management informations would derive from exit interviews, from appraisals. So you know, I'm mindful that some of the firms, particularly the smaller size brokerage, will look at the topic and say, "Well, this is, you know, I've got five employees. I know what's happening. Why do I need all this?" But these things will need to be documented because the FCA wants to see it. But also, just because you think you know it, it doesn't mean you actually know it. Mental health is not something that people openly talk about all the time so when somebody leaves you know there is that elimination of i can say what i want because there are no consequences now 
I think that's one of the touch points when firm can really dig into, is there any, any problem? Is there a financial pressure that we could have generally addressed for our staff? Is there an excessive workload, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, Just on the exit interview thing, I don't necessarily agree with that because I've done exit interviews over the past and priority, key of mind is don't burn bridges. Whatever you think, don't burn bridges because you never know. You, you, you're <laughs> right. And that drives into the second key regulatory elements that links to this topic, which is in the SMNCR regime. It expects, requires senior managers individually to be able to identify their culture. So if an employee is not happy, willing or confident to raise issues, one of the senior managers at the top is personally responsible to identify because that's incorrect culture. Employees would need to be empowered to be able to question and raise and contribute. So if you are not happy to do that because you think there will be consequences, if you're honest, then, you know, there are concerns with the culture. I'm not saying it's completely wrong. I'm just saying there is room for improvement. And it goes back to HR. How are you going to drive that culture pretty much? If there is that personal element in there, senior managers are not expected to be a brick wall and effectively a computer on the desktop running on numbers. There are emotions, but they need to rec- recognize the limits. And, and in this context, in, in, in context of mental health or exit interviews, my advice would be to, to kind of put a buffer into that. So use an external consultancy who conducts those exit interviews and that consultancy can translate those not so repeatable words into constructive feedback to the senior managers. Mm. And that way that emotional element is taken out and you effectively set yourself up for success rather than failure. Because you're right, if, if that is the situation, the senior manager becomes you know, emotionally overpowered, then straight away you just effectively affected someone else with a mental health issue because that individual will be angry, anxiety, and, and God knows what else, sleepless nights. So they can get out of hands, but mm. one would need to recognize that, okay, that's my limit. That's how I behave. I need an external consultant or someone else or hire someone completely independent who can, you know, streamline that process. I actually think you've hit the nail on the head there because otherwise there's always a, an agenda, personal, professional, just people. There's always an agenda. Yeah, I agree. I think an independent external uh, exit interview but I, I don't think this sort of thing needs to be left until an exit interview in fact that's the last thing you want to happen because you're losing talent there and um, if they're good talent you don't want to be losing them so there's actually some in HR there's been so much sort of uh, innovation around technology and this even reaches into well-being and mental health you've got literally uh, I think it's like literally on demand, like real-time data that you can be getting from your employees on how they are feeling. Um, and in fact, I, I did a, I ran a, a seminar, must be just over about 18 months ago, with an app company that they developed. A, a, they call it Mental Healthy, um, not Mental Health. It's a, a Mental Healthy <laughs> like approach. Um, so it's trying to make a more positive spin on you know the stigma, which we've already talked about, about mental health being a negative thing. Everybody has mental health. It's not a negative thing. You have a brain, therefore you have a mental health to look after. You know, we're all the same. We're all humans. So the app, it it can be quite intuitive. It's anonymous. Everybody's got access to it. It's part of their benefit program. 
And um, there are there are some you know, there's multiple ones of these around. But you know, you, you capture data and the information, and then it's not just about that. You are then able. This information is then captured, and then the app is then able to digest that information and then actually push information to you that's going to help you with that issue. So whether it's sleep issues, whether it's weight issues, whether it's relationship issues, it captures that information, feeds it back, and honestly to to the business, so they know how their people are feeling. And then it supports that person through information and generating um, information and sources of information to go to. So there's some really great stuff being done around mental health. That's incredible. Can you send me the link to that and I'll make sure? Yeah, sure. I mean, as I said, this is just one in particular, but there are others out there and, and it's real time data. This isn't, you know, once a year when they do their annual survey. This is every day, every week, however often you want to take the the very quick kind of how are you feeling tests, basically. That's incredible. I think that is that is amazing. And even I didn't know about that. So thank you for that. That's good. <laughs> I want it. I think. <laughs> I think and, and to be fair, they are, you know, they are cost effective. You know, everything app-based nowadays tends to be, you know. Really just to, it's very, very important for every firm. And, and in our experience, it doesn't really matter which angle we look at, whether it's, well, this is going to sound really cruel, but whether we're looking at from the personal angle, whether we look at it from the financial angle or the compliance angle, we have seen over the years where the firms were overly focused on business development or going through a restructure and there were other priorities, pressing priorities in place. And what it resulted in, in is an enormous pressure on the employees and none of the senior managers knew about it. And, it. and it got out of hands. It became a high turnover of staff, which wasn't the business model. So it created compliance issues. It created issues about delivering the service. But more importantly, the very extreme things we've seen is where individuals went to the FCA to whistleblow. And, you know, that put an enormous pressure on, on a firm when an employee whistleblows because the FCA real chances are the FCA will follow up on those issues. So the committed resources from from getting the documents in order, attending a a phone call or a meeting, uh, God forbid they bring the enforcement guys with them, you know, the consequences can be severe. And once you got uh, regulatory attention, that kind of sticks with you. So I mean, it's, it's important. And to be honest, Sarah, when you mentioned that app exists, I mean, it's, um, to me anyways, it, it looks like a bit of a no-brainer, really. If it's not going to cause any harm, it can only make it better, then why not? I think it shows a commitment from the company as well. So, you know, if that regulator does sort of, you know, if you are on their radar, you can say, you can show that you're proactively working on it, you know, um, by, giving, by giving sources of, of support to your employees. And, and that's, that's what the FCA is about. That, their primary objective is to try to work with firms if they see a hole or a gap or a weakness. But, yeah, they're not trying to take action if, if they think that would resolve the problem. Do you think that returning to work in the current circumstances is going to have a huge impact on people's mental health? I've spoken to people that are desperate climbing the walls to get out of home and people that 
have almost become agoraphobic as a result of being in the house. So the requirement to go out to work is a problem. There are people with underlying health conditions that don't know whether they qualify because they didn't receive the letter. So should they be shielding? Should they be not? You know, what's going to happen at work? Are we going to have these big screens up? Are we supposed to wear masks? What, you know, the mental health questions, the anxieties underlying are huge. What do you think firms can do about it now? Same question to both of you. Ladies first. Okay, so um, yeah, we are seeing the same with some of our clients. Anxiety levels are high. And as you said, Sarah, it's, it's, again, it's no, no one size fits all. Everybody's got very different experiences of the pandemic, both you know, personally and professionally, which is having an impact on their own individual views. So for me, and I, I did talk about this yesterday quite a lot, I know, but communication. <laughs> and documentation. Communication. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, documentation. I think the other thing which is really important is to partner with a really good occupational health specialist. And um, I partner with an health company and they're seeing a lot of anxiety cases with, with return to work. And, and they're able to then, you know, do a proper kind of fitness assessment as to the reasons why that person is struggling and then also help them put with the employer put into place a plan or, or with HR or the business whoever's responsible for that to get that person back to work. So that's my advice. For us, it's a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. We do uh, focus, um, I dare to say, specialise in working with firms who are fairly innovative. So they re- rely on mostly innovative platforms and, and applications to, to run the business. So in short tech, in other words. And they already have had the setup of flexible working arrangements. So that, that kind of hybrid approach of, you know, we've got an office if you want to go in there or if you have a meeting, see you there. Otherwise, let's try to do everything on Zoom, WebEx, Cisco, etc. And they are comfortable, to be honest. Uh, they, they dare to say dismissive of this issue. They don't really pay attention to concerns around going back to office because they just throw it out to their staff and if the staff doesn't want to go, they don't have to, which is a nice flexibility to have. But we do have clients, particularly in the older, old-fashioned sector of the insurance where face-to-face meeting is important, so high net worth and commercial lines most, most notably where that office environment, that face-to-face meeting is, is kind of crucial for driving the new business. And um, I know, sorry, you had a, podca- a podcast about it in the past, but finding that new sales channel that, that kind of goes hand-in-hand with this flexibility, there is anxiety there, yes. But to be honest, from the regulatory perspective, it's documenting your decision-making documenting that you've done the risk assessment, documenting that you're not putting your employees under undue pressure, and you're able to deliver the service as per regulatory and contractual expectations. So I'd like to say it's more of a HR issue, but it isn't really. It's just looking at those people and and try to work with them practically, not just as a big box exercise. I think one of the things about the insurance industry insurance brokers particularly are, they are predominantly, the sales personnel are predominantly people, people. Like it's about building relationships. It's about understanding their pain points. It's about looking beyond their immediate pain points and and, and suggesting actually 
have you considered this? This is quite a big risk for you. Did you know about it? Let's talk about it. So it's almost inbuilt that that kind of people focus. And I suppose it's just about getting people to recognize that you can expand that very same client-centric focus to your employees, employers, colleagues, you know, et cetera. And I think that's, um, that's one of the positives about, about this industry, because I know, like you say, it almost is, has been akin to financial services in terms of the very, very corporate world. But I think the people in it care. That's why they're in it. That's what they're doing. There's a, there's a lot of um, understanding there. So I think it's, it, hopefully COVID's given a bit of a shake up and um, the chips are going to fall in the right place. And I think things like that, like, you know, the conversations we have are being had across the board. What should people be looking out for? Employers, particularly smaller brokers, but actually the big brokers as well. What should they be looking out for over the next few months that would be really good MI for them to, to recognize that there may be a problem that's gone under the radar? That's a very good question. I mean, it's probably like how long is a piece of steak? Each firm is different. Each people are different. And the regulator, the FCA, has had webinars on how to measure culture and conduct. It's not like, it's not as straightforward as how many people left 10. Is it good or bad? It's not down to numbers. So it's very hard to quantify it. It's more of uh, putting it in context and reading a feedback. So each firm has different sets of management information. We've seen some very elaborate, very detailed reports about culture that involves from management information of do they turn up on time, how much, do, how much time do they commute, how many times do they change between buses and, and, and tube, and etc., and build up a profile and then try to measure employee satisfaction particularly over the first year. And we've seen the other end of the spectrum whereby you've got your exit interview and your annual appraisal and nothing really in between. But it's down to the firm, it's down to the senior managers. And again, it's being driven back to the SMNCR regime. And it's a very powerful regulatory tool for the FCA because effectively individual senior managers now are responsible personally to make sure they've got the right management information that satisfy them personally, that they've got the right understanding Mm -hmm. and they, they know what's happening in the business. So if a senior manager is not certain or not confident, then changes need to be made and consultants would need to be brought in. And I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, FCA consulting. This is to do with people. This is to do with, what works for you as a senior manager? What do you want to see? Do you want to see numbers? Do you want to see paragraphs? Do you want to see a chart? And work together to make sure you get that that right understanding. So really, it's uh, from as little as let's have a monthly chat to as much as every piece of detail from an employee's engagement with the firm. I tend to agree with Roland there. I think it's got to be a blended approach. People analytics or HR information or management information, however you want to put it, you know, we can measure and measure and measure people's activity as as to the cows come home. But what you cannot get away from is good people management skills. And, you know, you've got to have managers managing and talking to their people and getting to know them and understanding what, what issues they've got going on. 
you know, and some of the feedback I've had actually, which is a really positive thing, a bit, a bit unusual, but in COVID, because we've been so focused on transitioning to a remote working environment and our teams not being sat in front of this, managers have got to know their teams a lot better, a lot better because you have your daily Zoom calls and then you have your regular catch-ups one-to-one. So rather than just thinking you know your people because you come into the room in the morning, you have your coffee and the loudest person gets your attention or there's a bit of banter about the football the night before and then you sit at your desk and you think, oh, that's it, I know my team, my team are happy. It's not, it's much more detailed. You're sitting down on a Zoom call, kids running around the background, got the dog barking. Oh, you've got a dog, didn't know that. Yeah, and so you just get to know people a bit more. So, you know, there, there are some positives that have come out of this, and especially from a people management perspective, if they've been keeping in touch with their teams. But it is a blended approach. I think, yes, data's great, but we are human beings. And unless you can look someone in the eye and have a chat with them, you will know if that person is okay or not most of the time. I think that's excellent. I think... Um communication and documentation uh, <laughs> is 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 the the catchphrase for this uh, podcast as well I think that's been really really interesting and thank you both very much for your time is there anything you would like to add say do have a happy dance before we I mean just on the catchphrase I'm going to just reinforce it that documenting the decision whether it's pen and paper in a notebook or or Word, or, or notes on a laptop, or whatever. Just document what you're doing, one sentence and why, and have that in place. Because not only you can evidence it to any regulator that were to question you, but also you can measure your success against it. So it's for individuals personally. I'm going to call people once a week for this reason. And a month later, you can have a look whether it worked or not. And if it hasn't, change it. So yeah, document it. I might add a, another communication, documentation and filing system because it's no good <laughs> if you can't find where you documented yeah. it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Well, I think that's really, really good. Um, I shall put all of our contact details on the show notes. So if you've got any questions for Sarah or Roland, please feel free to shout. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullis Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.